Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome to the debut show of Provocative Enlightenment, an hour dedicated to inquiry, reflection, tantalizing questions, remarkable possibilities, the exposure of some conspicuous dissonance, the expulsion of falsehoods and brainwashing, and a whole lot more, all in an effort to understand exactly what enlightenment means and what it is to be enlightened. Each week, we undertake anew our search and a discovery of the human potential. Sometimes we'll shatter myths and exhibit logical errors, but we'll always open ourselves up to the possibility of being wrong. And in the end, our What Does It Mean segment will ask, how do we use that knowledge? With the necessary courage to uncover our limitations, we truly expand our awareness. And in this way, at least we hope, become more enlightened. I believe it's a progressive awareness thing, if you will, where enlightenment is not something that comes suddenly and totally in the dark, as the saying might go. No, in the dark, a small candle works to shed light on matters. But then that light is far short of our experience with the sun on a clear, bright day. So around here for the next hour and every Tuesday at this time, we will willingly go deeply into the dark in order to find the curtains and pull them wide, allowing the clarity of light to shine on our inquiries. To do this work, we must first get past our screen mind go behind and even past the binary mind into the deepest levels of our being. I think of all the falseness and programming as simply mind programming, the title of my latest book. This programming is typically deep and much farther reaching than most would think. It goes to the very heart of who you are and what your last original thought might have been. If you had one in the recent past. That's one of my favorite questions nowadays. Think about that. What was your last original thought? Truly original. If you're thinking about that question, then it should come as no surprise to most of you that when I ask this question, I usually get an answer that sounds very much like this. That's right, silence. What are we to think then If we discover that our ambitions, the car we want, the home we would like to own, the clothes we wear, the way we talk, and the words we use, the spiritual practices that we employ have all been given us. In other words, through the media, our enculturation process, uh, those we share information with, the fantasies we have engendered, and the beliefs we have taken aboard, we have truly, perhaps, alienated ourselves from who we really are. Think about that. Is that possibly true? This past weekend, I gave a presentation to a group of people interested in bettering their lives. I opened the presentation by stating that everyone present would learn that much of who they thought they were was indeed not who they were at all. Like most, this group wished to improve many things. Sometimes it was their spiritual connectedness, and sometimes it was the level of success and prosperity they enjoyed. There were many different priorities among them with respect to the reason they attended. Perhaps like you, they were seeking something that could definitely provide a tool or show a path to what they were seeking. 
I shared with them a conversation I had with Jay-Z Knight in a taped interview that will air here on my show on Hay House Radio while I'm in New York on October 20th of this year. As an aside, you will want to listen to this two-part interview, for Jay-Z had some interesting things to say, and she provided a couple of techniques that you normally would have to attend her school to learn about. But back to my conversation with Jay-Z as I shared it this past weekend. The question I put to her went like this. What do you think about all this rush to self-help stuff? I set the question up this way. It seems that there are many teachers, coaches, mediums, and other modalities today for self-improvement, and that much of them teach the same. Like the secret, there really is no secret here and nothing new, just some great packaging. The problem doesn't seem to be in the tools or the teachers. It appears to be among the so-called students. When we do exit polls, assessing the value of notable workshops by some of the most famous among them, we find that attendees by and large report that the event will change their lives. In other words, they are glad they attended and they know what they are talking and what they're taking away is both well worth the price at the door and will make a real difference in their lives. Now, when we follow this up some 30 days later, what we hear usually goes like this. Well, I haven't had a chance to try it. Or I gave it a lot of thought and decided it just didn't work with my personality. Or perhaps I heard there was another seminar coming to town and I wanted to check it out first. And on and on. In other words, nothing changed but the amount of money they had spent on self-help. Okay, so when I asked Jay-Z this question, remember... What do you think of this rush to self-help stuff? Her answer went like this. It's an addiction. People are addicted to self-help because they are addicted to how it makes them feel, to recognize that they need help. That's an interesting view. Addicted to self-help. My partner, Ravinder, has said this for many years. Normally, she watches the chat room. But we do not as yet have that set up. By next week, we hope to have a chat room at eldentaylor.com where you can log in live during our broadcast and ask your questions, bring your ideas, and so forth to our show. But this week, she is here to be the person on the street that asks, so what do I do? How do I use this information? What does it mean for me? So say hello to everyone out there, Ravinder. Hi, everyone out there. It's good to be here. Each week, we'll have a What Does It Mean segment, and we'll have someone from the street, uh, if you will, to use that language, that will be here to question myself or question our guests on whatever our topic has been. All right, back to addiction. In my workshop this past week, I also shared a story that is among my favorites. The story comes from the marvelous book by Herman Hess, Siddhartha. It seems that the hero of the book is named Siddhartha, just like the Buddha. Like the Buddha, Siddhartha is born to wealth and station, but leaves his home to find enlightenment. He becomes involved in many different disciplines, learns to control his every body function, becomes the most outstanding at each discipline, only to find that it is, is his enlightenment, that which he seeks, is not to be found there. One day, he and his faithful friend, who has followed him everywhere since leaving home and studied alongside Siddhartha through it all, here of the Buddha. Off they go to meet the Buddha. They find the grove that he teaches in and they hear his teachings. 
Siddhartha recognizes his brilliance and wisdom. The Buddha is truly enlightened. The next morning, Siddhartha leaves the grove. As he departs, or begins to depart, his faithful friend asks him why he is leaving, for he recognizes the Buddha's enlightenment. Siddhartha tells his friend to remain, for this is what his friend has been seeking. His friend is puzzled, but says his goodbyes. Just as Siddhartha is exiting the grove, the Buddha himself stops him and asks, Why are you leaving? Siddhartha answers, All my life I have searched for an enlightened teacher, and I found it in you. But once I found it, I realized that it was not the enlightened teacher I really sought. It was enlightenment itself. There are many things we don't know about ourselves. Most are unaware of their hidden biases, but we all have them. Jesse Jackson tells a story of walking back to his hotel one night when he heard fast-approaching heavy footsteps from behind. Concerned, he turned and was relieved when he saw it was a white man. Now imagine his embarrassment to both discover and to admit that this bias from the civil rights activists was nevertheless present. Think of Susan Boyle for a minute. I love this one. Diane and I spoke about it a few months ago. The singer that appeared on Britain's Got Talent. She appeared in such a disheveled manner, and excuse me, but old-time housekeeper apparel, that judges and audience alike were laughing or rolling their eyes. But when she opened her mouth and began to sing, everything changed. A magnificent voice, and millions have watched this performance on YouTube. But the question should be, why are we taken back? What has appearance got to do with voice quality? What is our expectation telling us? I would love to go on with examples, and we will in shows to come, but we're short on time today. Still, I guarantee you that all of us hold hidden biases and context-bound reasoning that literally dumbfounds us when we see them for the first time. The fact is, if you hold a number of beliefs like this and are unaware of them, how can you ever hope to become enlightened? But then, what is enlightenment? Personally, I think it's a process, and that process may take an entire lifetime or more. However, this I know for certain. Unless we peel back the falseness that may come, that many come to think, myself included, is who we are. We will never find enlightenment. My charge with this show is to bring special guests to you that can share meaningful insights into the purpose of life and your true potential. My guests and myself, for that matter, will often challenge you in ways that may initially make you uncomfortable. But I promise that if you stay with us just a bit, you will learn much about yourself. And to me, well, that's what it's all about. To thine own self be true. My guests this week are two gentlemen that have examined carefully the propaganda and deliberate brainwashing techniques that are employed on all of us daily and the potential this programming has to literally train us like any other trained animal. The media provides our choices and we choose. But we are choosing between the choices given us blind to all the alternative options. Add to this some of the technology that's around that can literally alter your brainwave states. 
and you have a recipe for something I don't want to even entertain. I wrote about several types of technology of this kind in mind programming and cited our first guest on one in particular that is alarming for a number of reasons. I'm speaking of Dr. Nick Beggage. Dr. Beggage is the author of a number of books and will be our guest in November for an entire hour. But the one book we are interested in today, the one area that we particularly want to pick his mind, is, is from that book titled, Angels Don't Play This Harp. Welcome to the show, Dr. Beggage. It's good to be with you, Eldon. I'm, I'm looking forward uh, to the program today and again uh, in November. Well, great, sir. Tell us, what is HARP, H-A-A-R-P? It's the High Frequency Active Auroral Research Project, which was originally a joint effort of the uh, Air Force and Navy and the Geophysical Institute at the University of Alaska. It later got um, taken over uh, by DARPA, which does essentially defense-related research. Um, It it has a number of different uses, uh, but they built in Alaska a prototype Uh, which has 180 antennas in an array or field. Uh, These are approximately 70 feet tall. Uh, Then they have a cross diapole going uh, sort of perpendicular to the ground at the top. So if you can imagine just a field of 180 antenna, and then by firing or um, charging the antennas in a specific way, uh, you can create a number of of weapons effects. what on earth would our government build something like this for? Well, initially, uh, the idea was to e- exploit uh, some uh, efficiencies that could be created within uh, the environment, actually uh, manipulating an area above the Earth's surface called the ionosphere, which begins about 30 miles above the Earth's surface and extends out approximately 600 miles from there. And when it, when it becomes disturbed by solar radiation, um, or other in, incoming uh, radiation, uh, it can become um, disturbed to the point where terrestrial communications doesn't work, in fact, even to the point of affecting uh, power grids. So learning about the ionosphere was sort of the justification for the funding, and then being able to manipulate or change the character of the ionosphere uh, is the root of the science. So they literally uh, plug this machine on the ground, and by using uh, – a uh, high-frequency signal that's manipulated in a number of ways, they can actually get the ionosphere uh, to change from um, uh, DC, direct current, to an alternating current or a pulsing uh, current. So it acts as a huge uh, antenna in the sky capable of sending back a signal to the Earth that can be used for a number of uses. Uh, the ones that probably make sense to talk about today would be the Earth-penetrating a tomography or communicating with submarines, which requires a very long wavelength, um, what's referred to as an extremely low-frequency signal, an ELF, which can then pass through the Earth and sea readily um, and allow for communications um, or underground imaging. Uh, the problem there is that that frequency range happens to be the same range of human brain activity. And so there's a great deal of concern about how this uh, system might affect uh, human behavior. Okay. For for those of us that are perhaps not as scientific as you are, Dr. Baggage, uh, how is this going to influence human behavior? I mean, if, if indeed it, it could or would, uh, in what direct way would we expect that to happen? 
Well, what, what it can do is it, it can create what's called a frequency-following response, an FFR. And this is where an external signal that can be introduced through this kind of system on a mass scale or even smaller systems using a pulsed uh, a radio signal or a pulsed electric current, uh, pulsing light, all of these things can cause the brain to sort of lock on to that external signal and then begin to mirror it, begin to copy it. And, and it, when it does so, uh, brain chemistry changes, emotional states change uh, very, very readily. In fact, with radio frequency energy, the stuff of HARP, it says it, you can do it with one-fiftieth the amount of energy that the Earth naturally produces if you hit one of these specific window frequencies that cause that change in brain chemistry. Now, think about it like a radio. People listening to us today on radio, they dialed through the various stations, and most of the time they just got static between the stations. But when they got on, on the point, on the station, they got the right frequency, they got a nice clear signal uh, between the transmitter and the receiver. Well, the human body and the human brain operate the same way. Most of the radiation affecting us from all the different uh, sources passes through us um, relatively harmlessly. But certain uh, frequency ranges interact with the body and the mind uh, in a very specific way, just like uh, uh, dialing in the radio station. And so when you get that resonance effect, that harmonizing effect, is where you get this change in brain chemistry that leads to changes in your emotional state. All right. So for all intent and purposes, if I understand you correctly, what, what we're doing with this frequency-following response or what is potentially uh, possible to be done with this frequency-following response isn't a lot different than what, uh, say, the Monroe Institute might do when they create uh, programs that, that we purchase that are designed to alter our brainwave states and thereby alter brain chemistry. Is that correct? It's, it's the same principle, a little differently applied. You know, Monroe sure. uses bioral beat, which is a, a bit different. Um, but sure. it's the same idea. It's affecting okay. the brain chemistry ultimately. Okay. So th that's a recognized area of science where we know that for all intent and purposes, if we slow down the brainwave activity, we move it out of what we think of as beta, the ordinary conscious state, right. and move it into alpha, uh, which is at least the state that this would produce. Is that not correct? Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, it's, you know, in, in, in that case, you know, if you're doing it deliberately with some intention in mind for super learning applications, for creative work, the alpha range is really an ideal place to be. Uh, when it's imposed on you, say, to the low alpha, the high theta ranges, this is more like a light trance-like state where you're taking information in, and if you're not screening that information, uh, it has a profound effect. I'm not even. I'm not even sure you can screen that information effectively. That's I mean, right. the research would indicate that you're in a state that I've testified in courts as an expert on hypnosis. We call hypersuggestibility. Absolutely. It's that simple. Absolutely. So, so the government has. I want. I want to make sure we're clear on this. The government has, and in, in this application, HARP. We we have the ability, if it were desired to be used, to alter brainwave states and place an entire society, a, a population, a large population, into low alpha or higher theta for whatever purposes we might have in mind. Is that correct? That is correct. In fact, um, Persinger at Laurentian University suggested exactly this kind of system could be used for that purpose, even going back further uh, in history, a guy named J.F. Gordon McDonald back in 
1969, uh, in a book called Unless Peace Comes, suggested if we could ever electronically stroke the ionosphere in just the right way, we'd return a signal back to the Earth that would have exactly this effect. In fact, there's a big new Brzezinski in his book, Between Two Ages, uh, he suggested exactly the same thing back in the early 1970s when he was still at Columbia University before he became National Security Advisor to President Carter. This technology goes back way back. The understanding of it goes way back. The differences in 1969 and the early 70s when they talked about this technology, they didn't have a delivery system. HARP is that delivery system, potentially, if the government chose to use it in this way or as a side effect, which is what government representatives have suggested, oh, we're not worried about this, it's just a side effect. Well, those of us uh, that like to think freely don't consider this kind of a side effect a light matter uh, and is why we've been uh, pursuing this issue for the last uh, 15 years as they've continued to develop the site and gone from initial uh, 48 antenna to the 180. We continue to raise the issues, and, and more and more, um, as time has gone on, we've been proven absolutely correct. In fact, nothing that we wrote originally in the book Angels Don't Play This Harp has ever been uh, refuted uh, by the government uh, in any credible way. Uh, yeah, in any any way, really. I mean, by the government, no one has actually from the government challenged what you wrote, have they? No. In fact, they refused. No. They have refused to debate us in any forum uh, ever. Or to comment they, on it. That's right. And the only time they ever commented was when the state legislature here had a hearing uh, and, and they were just totally blown out of the water. We had experts from Princeton University and others testifying in that hearing. Uh, they were ill-prepared, uh, and there were supposed to be tertiary hearings that never occurred. Um, at that time, it was U.S. Senator Stevens that told the Republican majority in our state legislature, you have one more hearing and your political careers are over. And at that time, he wielded the kind of power that would actually result in that. In fact, the chairman of that committee actually made that statement uh, in a public uh, forum that was eventually ran on, uh, run on a, a TV segment. Uh, but, you know, this is the kind of stuff that happens uh, when these kinds of projects get challenged. Okay, so here we have a technology that hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent on to, to build. It happens to uh, be able to broadcast uh, itself in propagating wave-like form. Uh, from antenna to antenna, and what would appear to be antennas remarkably similar to those antennas we use in cell phones. Is that correct? It's similar um, in, in the idea, but the, the signal is, is much different. By manipulating it, what they create is something called cyclotron resonance, which, to make it simple, the way it would look, if you saw it coming off the antenna, it would look like a big kind of corkscrewing body of energy that gets smaller and smaller as it gets higher and higher. And then by pulsing or pumping that energy, is like a hammer hitting the ionosphere. And what right. happens is the ionosphere begins to ring or, or come create a signal that's at that hammer rate. And that's where you get this ELF or extremely low frequency. But instead of the little 180 antennas on the ground, you now have a couple thousand miles of ionosphere acting as this antenna, resending that energy back to the Earth. That's but my point, my point, Dr. Baggage, is you could have that antenna in your backyard nearly. You could pass it every day and take it. You, you would pass by it thinking it were just another um, cell phone antenna. Correct. In fact, um, there's a really excellent article that originally ran in the U.S. Army uh, quarterly called Perimeters 
uh, at the U.S. Army War College. And what it basically said is any electromagnetic carrier can be pulsed, whether it's the power grid itself, telephone networks, uh, Internet connections, um, radio signals can piggyback these signals. Any electromagnetic carrier can be used to pulse a signal or piggyback a signal that can affect human behavior. So all of these yeah. sources can be used. All right. Dr. Beggage, I'm looking forward to you being back with us in November. But for our listening audience, real quickly, in 20 seconds, how do they get a hold of you? Sure. The best place is uh, earthpulse.com, E-A-R-T-H-P-U-L-S-E, earthpulse.com, or they can call us toll-free at 888-690-1277. Again, that's 888-690-1277. All right. Be sure to stay tuned for my guest in the next hour. We'll share with us what he learned while filming the new documentary, Programming the Nation, a film both Nick and I had a part in. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment. We'll be right back after we pay some bills with these messages from our sponsors. Close your eyes. Imagine your goals and dreams. What's preventing you from accomplishing them? Most often, we are our own worst enemies. I can't. I'm not good enough. It's time to reprogram that inner dialogue. Replace all those negative self-images with, I'm good. I am powerful. I can do anything. Eldon Taylor's InnerTalk patented subliminal technology does just that. Researched at numerous universities such as Stanford and by governments such as Mexico and Germany, InnerTalk has repeatedly been proven effective at changing your self-talk. Stop imagining your goals and make them a reality today. Visit www.innertalk.com. That's I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K.com. InnerTalk.com. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Eldon Taylor, and it's my pleasure to host this special investigation. I love your comments and feedback, so please join me on Facebook or send your email to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com. We'll try to share some of your letters every week because your feedback does influence our programming, and we're grateful for that guidance. So I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you, and enjoy. Do you feel like you've become lost in a funhouse? Only seeing the reflection of yourself past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you, I invite you to step through the doorway and onto the path leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Elton Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions, now expanded, updated, and revised. It will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free from your current perceptions and begin your journey to how high is up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. If you just joined us, we're discussing mind programming on Provocative Enlightenment. If you haven't obtained your copy of my book, Mind Programming, go to eldentaylor.com and click on the picture of the book. Now, in this next half hour, we're joined by Mr. Jeff Warwick, producer of the new documentary, Programming the Nation. 
From Jeff, we will learn just how pervasive ordinary programming propaganda really is. We will discuss subliminal advertising. And by the way, in my book, Mind Programming, I offer an actual training manual used by an advertising agency. And it illustrates exactly how they embed sexual and other taboo images, as well as describe in detail the what and why they do so. If you don't have the book, again, you can go to my site, look at some of the images in color for yourself. That's eldentaylor.com. But I warn you, this content is not for small children. My guest actually visited the man that's supposed to be over advertising ethics and conduct. And we'll hear what happened when Jeff asked about the subliminal advertising. And by the way, just so you know, it is not illegal, as many think. Welcome to the show, Mr. Jeff Warwick. Thanks for having me, Eldon. It's a pleasure to be here. It's our pleasure to have you. Tell us, what did happen with your New York visit when you wished to speak about subliminal advertising and whether or not it was used by agency? Indeed, set up the story and then relate what happened, please. Well, we attempted to contact a few people in advertising, including uh, the FCC. Uh, As you mentioned, uh, contrary to what most people think, subliminal advertising is not and I repeat, not illegal in America. Um, uh, When we contacted the FCC, they provided us with a 1974 uh, public statement that basically stated that subliminal perception uh, is inconsistent with the obligations of a licensee and that um, broadcast of such material is clearly uh, intended to be deceptive. Now, although this is their policy on this, this is not a governing law or a rule that is enforceable. In fact, the FCC has no enforcement over advertisers at all. They just have can enforce the uh, networks that they are are over, ABC, NBC, stations like that. So we attempted uh, to contact the advertising agencies themselves, um, numerous dozens of agencies. Um, no one was really willing to speak with us. We uh, did finally get an interview from a company by the name of JWT, one of the largest advertising firms in the nation, formerly uh, J. Walter Thompson until 2005, and then they backed out at the last second prior to our interview. So we went to a governing body known as the American Association of Advertising Agencies, uh, also called 4A, and um, attempted to contact the vice president of public affairs at that organization, Kip Chang. And he denied us interviews numerous times, and during one of our trips to New York City, we decided, well, let's just pay him a visit and, you know, see if he'll speak with us. And when we got there in the lobby, to our surprise, he allowed us to come up. Well, we came up with cameras because we were figuring we were going to do an interview. And when we got there, he pretty much chastised us and, uh, you know, told our cameraman to quit filming, get out of the building. He kicked them out. And then, to my surprise, he, he said, I will speak with you, but in private and off the record. So he took me into his office and pretty much lectured me for about 15 minutes, telling me that, you know, doing a documentary like this was was really a bad thing to do and that, um, it, you know, he could help me if he wanted to, but that he wasn't going to. And then he escorted me out of the building as well. So it just kind of let me think, you know, what is he trying to hide here and why, will, why won't anyone speak with me? 
Yeah. Now, the 4A, just just for uh, everyone's information, was actually created as a result of pressure placed on advertising agencies, was it not, uh, during like the early 1984 uh, hearings on subliminal and some of the legislative actions in different states, et cetera? Wasn't this their way of, of heading off uh, perhaps some uh, other direct interference from a government agency? Well, that's what our experts uh, have said during the, in the making of the film. They've explained that that's how it came to be. And uh, one of those experts was uh, Wilson Bryant Key, who wrote a number of books in the 70s on this very topic, uh, including subliminal um, uh, subliminal um, communication, subliminal seduction. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, clamp plate orgy. Um, the Age of Manipulation, a number of books on this, which really hyped the topic and created kind of a public outwar in the 70s and uh, early 80s. We actually got an interview with him uh, to discuss this in his books, and, uh, you know, he's since passed away, so we probably have one of the last interviews with him. But, yeah, he explained that that is why this governing body was kind of formed, is to dispel the myth of subliminal advertising. So I guess it's not really, you know, surprising that they wouldn't give an interview with me. Yeah, well, now, we know that they use it, and for a moment, let's just kind of flesh out this uh, bit about how the FCC does does not have any control over it. Uh, the, the Bush campaign, of course, is infamous, at least in part, for the use of rats in uh, an ad that appeared extensively in Gore's home state and in Florida, two states that that Gore lost and lost very close that did swing the election. And indeed, there has been some research since then that has demonstrated that this could have influenced voters enough to swing it. But in the ad, the word rats appeared behind uh, Al Gore's uh, head and well, behind and above the head. And uh, you show this in the film. Uh, the Democratic, uh, well, it was discovered, and of course Republicans initially denied it, but then ultimately came forward and said, uh, yeah, it was done, and, and so on and so forth. But, but the Democratic Party pursued this with their total tenacity, and they were unable to get anything as a result, any punitive, any penalty, any anything. Is that right? Yeah, there was no there was no penalty or fine placed on uh, the Democratic Party at all for running that ad. In fact, basically the FCC said, "Okay, please don't run it anymore." And the Democratic Party, including Bush uh, and his reelection team, uh, stated, "Well, we we're done running the ad anyway. It already ran its course in those markets, so you know we'll stop running it when you know, and and that's it. It was already pretty much ran its course, so." Yeah, they, were, they did not receive any kind of penalty or fine or anything for that. So we know, I mean, factually, that even at the highest levels of government, that when when a senator, a congressman, a vice president, a candidate for president puts pressure on uh, that th this so-called codification is totally unenforceable. Totally unenforceable. I mean, I've done my you know due diligence to find any law that. Uh, that clearly supports, you know, the uh, non-use of such technology and techniques, and there isn't any. You know, one of the things I love about your film, and I'm going to encourage everybody out there, 
to get a copy of this film, and we'll tell you how because it's not yet been released, or at least we'll tell you how you can access a preview before the show's over. But one of the things that I really love about it is the fact that you, Jeff, came in uh, looking to prove or disprove. You were kind of the doubting Thomas. You didn't you didn't believe that it was being used maybe as extensively as as you thought it was as a child uh, because yeah. of the stories your father had told us. Tell us about that process and tell us where you stand today. Do you think it is as uh, uh, as as much in the media as I suggest in my book. Well, let me preface by saying that I am definitely not a conspiracy nut, and I actually work in advertising for numerous years between uh, about 2003 and 2008, selling uh, print advertising. Um, you know, the story really fascinated me um, because of what my father had told me in the 70s about Wilson Brian Key's book, and that kind of told the story of how they blipped popcorn and Coke in theaters in the uh, late 1950s, um, a story I believe is fact. Well, fast forward to 2002, approximately, post-9-11. Um, we have Bush beating the drums for war. We have alert levels on all the networks going up and down for terrorism threats. And we had people claiming that, uh, you know, 9-11 was an inside job. All of these things kind of spawned my curiosity on how we were being manipulated in this country. And once again, I was very skeptical. I mean, um, I, having worked in advertising, I didn't really believe that, uh, you know, such things were being used. But I wanted to explore it anyway just to see what I could find out. And I really took a very subjective approach in the filmmaking, attempting to get both sides of the story. Um, in fact, uh, we spoke with several people, uh, although we didn't actually get an interview with anyone in a major ad agency, one person we spoke with, and uh, a lot of viewers might have heard of this man, is Mark Mothersbaugh, a uh, former uh, singer of the band Devo. I guess they're still right. doing so much touring. But after the big career of Devo in the 70s, he went on to kind of a career in uh, creating ad jingles for commercials. And one of the commercials that he put together, one of his first commercials, actually, was a Hawaiian Punch commercial. And, you know, he tried it. He said it was just really too sweet and thought that, you know, he would put something in there that, I guess, the message that he actually inserted was, sugar is bad for you. And those who know Devo, they're kind of a subversive band. And he, his message uh, that he thought he would put in this commercial would be a little subversive, sugar is bad for you. He laid it just below the musical track, just where, you know, just above the threshold of hearing where you could hear it if you were really listening for it, but where you wouldn't really notice it. And he explained to me in our interview, which is in the film, that he's sitting in front of all these ad execs and they're tapping their toes and they're singing along the tune. And then the, the, the phrase sugar is bad for you went by and they heard it, but but the execs didn't hear it. And they, they never heard it. It got laid down on the track and it went out nationally. And he stated to me that, and this is a quote, that if I can put subliminal messages in a commercial, that advertising needs, then advertising agencies must have a much easier time of it and probably can do it in much bigger ways. So that's kind of one right, example now, of how it's being used yeah, or so, how it can be used. So I know for a fact, because you and I have talked about this at great length, and uh, 
I, I know, you know, about the extent that you went interviewing everybody, including people on the street, about what they thought of uh, subliminal advertising. We'll come back to that one in just a second. But when you were said and done, is there any doubt in your mind but what there isn't an intentional effort employed by uh, the media uh, through advertising agencies, political organizations, you name it, if they've got it to sell to you, that doesn't employ subliminal information, taboo information, does not seek to increase anxiety in all of us. Is there any doubt in your mind about that? Absolutely no doubt whatsoever. I mean, according to the experts, experts that we spoke with uh, in making the film, you know, to be effective, subliminal advertising must do one of two things. First, it must either stimulate an unconscious anxiety, or two, it must satisfy an unconscious fantasy. And um, the research has proven that the human brain is extremely sensitized to two things, uh, two taboo things in our society, often taboo, which is sex and death. Now, the unconscious will remember that for a long time, and we may not know for exactly how long. It probably varies from person to person. But um, as an example of how it's used in society, and this has been, you know, really explored in our film, is how anxiety is associated with things like the consumption of cigarettes and alcohol. I mean, we, we all know that people smoke more when they're nervous, and it's totally logical to think that making them nervous would induce them to smoke or drink more. And if you think about it, to purposely intend to make people anxious without knowing, like, you know, how that person deals with anxiety or, you know, the only thing you're wanting is that you light up a cigarette, but you don't know what else it might do is absolutely insidious to me. And yeah. um, subliminal, you know, advertising definitely, from what I have explored in the film, is being used on a large scale. Uh, in society, and most people have no clue that it's taking place. I mean, they, they're aware of the, and, the stories in the 70s of embedding things in ads like sex, the word sex a lot, but it's it's gone much deeper than that with, with modern technology. It's much more pervasive than people realize. A good belly laugh, they say, is worth a thousand syllogisms, and that, I believe, is just exactly what happened when in my opinion, in the late 80s, early 90s, when the infamous Judas Priest case was filed against CBS uh, by two families in Reno, Nevada, uh, whose young sons had listened to the Stained Class album, Better By You, Better Than Me, uh, or actually the album was Stained Class, I'm sorry. The song was Better, better By You, uh, Better Than Me. And it contained the lyrics... Uh, uh, in the lyrics that, that encouraged, these were lyrics you could hear, audible lyrics you could hear that encouraged suicide with a command, subliminal command, do it, do it. So two young men, unaware of that subliminal command, began to chant, do it, do it. Took a shotgun from their father's home, one of the boys' home. They went to the schoolyard not far up the street. The first one braced the shotgun while they chanted, do it, do it, pulled the trigger, killed himself. The second one, Mr. Vance, didn't brace the shotgun, trembled in his own words later uh, to tell us, because it took him three years to die after many, many operations, uh, pulled the trigger, the gun jerked forward and blew the front of his face off. Well, that lawsuit triggered all kinds of so-called experts from all around the world that 
suddenly were experts on subliminal that came in and essentially said subliminal doesn't work. And uh, it's a hoax and uh, it's a fraud and uh, we can't don't process that information and on and on and on. And what most people don't believe or don't understand is that in the end, the presence of the subliminal was shown uh, to exist. However, the original 24-track master was never located. So the argument that it was coincidental sound and not intentionally placed there, despite the fact that Judas Priest admitted to placing subliminals in other albums, but not this one, was sufficient for the case to be dismissed. But most importantly, CBS was fined repeatedly over and over the maximum under Nevada law for manipulating the media and leaking stories that were sometimes uh, fallacious. Uh, they were definitely some of those stories uh, designed to challenge the credibility of the witnesses appearing for the family and against CBS. And you looked at some of this in your film, Jeff. Uh, when you came away from that, did you have an opinion on that case? Uh, on the case itself, you know, yes. I, I, I think that the messages were there. Um, whether they were intentionally placed there or not, uh, I'm uncertain. But it, it is awful suspicious that CBS would not was not able to produce that original 24-track master, uh, even though. They had hired, I guess, uh, a Scotland Yard detective to find it, and he reported in court that he could not find it and that he, I guess, went to their vault to find it, and they said that he said that he couldn't, he wasn't allowed in there. Right, he wasn't allowed in the vaults. He looked everywhere except in the vaults where they wouldn't allow him. They wouldn't allow him in there. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. That is very suspicious, I think. Um, Now, you no doubt have an opinion on whether or not there continues to be in modern music subliminal uh, statements. Uh, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think without a doubt, uh, numerous bands continue to use uh, such techniques to in their recordings, you know, to create emotion, to create effect, uh, to tell a story, a lot of things in music. Um, you know, a lot of people that that like that kind of music pick up on whispered voices or um, other effects. Some of it is engineered purposely and put there, and um, most of it's just done for effect. You know, whether it can be the straw on the camel's back in terms of creating uh, enough anxiety where two individuals will commit suicide or not is really probably dependent upon those individuals and how much they allow such things to influence them. Um, but at the same time, it could also be having a number of different effects on listeners that they're not aware of. So I think it really, a lot more research probably needs to be done in that field. Yeah. Now, when you talk about that, let's go, let's go back to the anxiousness part of it, because a lot of, of our listeners, I'm sure, most people that I've talked to, they don't seem to get why an advertiser would want to make you anxious. And, of course, you covered that in part. But I think a good example is a brand-new piece of research out of the U.K. that shows us uh, when a cigarette smoker looks at the Surgeon General's warning, which tells you you're going to die if you smoke a cigarette. That's a good example. It, it, it actually excites the nucleus accumbens and gives rise to more desire to smoke. 
and and that's how this anxiety fun- this principle works. If if I can make you anxious that you're going to be insecure because you don't have this car and this beautiful woman, what are you going to try to do? Absolutely. Who knows what different individuals may try to do. But, uh, you know, just the fact of uh, creating anxiety and neurosis in individuals to in- induce them to smoke or drink more is absolutely insidious and I think, you know, needs to be regulated in some way. We have uh, on our website a take action page where people can actually send a letter to their decision makers um, to begin legislation in these in these areas. Things what, what's like, the URL of that page? What's the URL? Well, it's programmingthenation.com, and then just go to the, to the the link for take action. You can, okay. you know, you don't have to do anything. A lot of us don't have time to sit there and write our own letters to Congress. But if you fill out this form on my page, I'm happy to send the following letter that you'll see on that page to Congress and our decision makers, your local uh, congressperson and senators. So, um yeah, I mean, most people aren't aware of what, you know how anxiety and and neurosis is used in advertising, but it's definitely. I, I think through my research, I've it's shown me that it's used extensively. All right. Bottom line: in less than a minute, Mr. Warwick, sir. Uh, when you're through, you've created this film. You're looking at it. You're looking at the product of it. You've talked to all these experts. You talked to Nick Beggich, who we had in the first hour. You talked to literally everyone uh, that I can think of that was a credible source. <clears throat> when you walked away, is there any doubt in your mind that the average individual out there is not, at many levels, the product of the consumption of media? Oh, my God. We are programmed on a massive level from birth to begin to believe that the world is a certain way. And um, without a doubt, you know, media plays a huge part in that programming. It plays the ultimate role in teaching us how to act, how to behave, how to think, and what to question, or in most cases, what not to question. So, yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. We are all. All right. How, how does our listening – uh... How does our listening audience reach you, Jeff? How well, do they are, see the film? Well, we're attempting to release the film here, and so uh, one of the things that we're doing is um, we are offering a pre-screener of the film, and uh, I'm making that available to your listeners today. By going to our website, you can contact me um, through that website or at uh, jeffw.ignitesproductions.net to send me an email, and I'll give you directions on on how you can obtain the DVD. So you can also reach me at area code 831-247-0729 on the phone, and I'll be happy to uh, take orders that way as well. So, All right. Well, now I want everybody out there to go, definitely go to um, his website and check out the uh, – the trailers that are there and, and see about seeing the film. That's ProgrammingTheNation.com. Now, we've come to the end of our first hour of Provocative Enlightenment, and we wanted to discuss, um, you know, what does it mean? Well, maybe we'll pick up what does it mean in the next show, but I'll tell you this. It means pay attention to everything you're putting in your head. I want to thank our guests today for joining us, and I hope you have enjoyed our show, and will join us again next week, same time, same place. My guest next week is Lorna Byrne, author of the publishing phenomena, Angels in My Hair. I've spoken with her at length. She is the real deal. 
So join us next week. And until then, to thine own self be true.